Today on Act News Daily. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. This is Delaney Howell and I am missing my co-host today, Mike Pearson. He is traveling today trying to get ahead of some of this winter storm weather that's going to be uh, probably hitting a lot of the Midwest today, especially Iowa, central Iowa. It looks like on the radar here. There could be some folks in Nebraska getting some bad weather, some parts of Kansas getting some bad weather. And then there's also some uh, rain cell storms, it looks like, really moving across a lot of the Midwest and kind of eastern part, eastern Midwest, if that's what you want to call it, the uh, Indiana, Ohio area. So there's a lot of winter weather in the making this week, but come on, I think this comes as no surprise, folks. It is still winter. We've been pretty spoiled so far to have pretty lax winter, pretty nice, mild winter so far, but for all of the those of us out there thinking, oh man, this weekend's going to ruin it all. It is, unfortunately, but it is still winter. Today is also January 10th, so for those of you that follow the commodity markets, it is WASDE Report Day that was dropped this morning. And Mike is contributing to today's podcast. He's just not hosting with me, so he'll be catching up with a Zaner Group representative to talk about that WASDE report, but really it was kind of a non-event today. And part of the reason for that, I think, was because of what the USDA did with those areas in Michigan, Minnesota, and the Dakotas, as well as Wisconsin, that really hasn't been harvested yet. They released a special note along with today's WASDE report saying when producers were surveyed, there were still significant unharvested acreage of corn and soybeans in those areas. And so the unharvested area and expected production were included in totals published in this report. They did say, however, that NAS will recontact those respondents who previously reported acreage not yet harvested in the state's come early spring. So hopefully everybody is done with their harvest by this spring. Sounds crazy to say. But then they said if any of that newly collected data justifies any changes, they will change it. They will update those 2019 corn and soybean estimates in a later report. So unfortunately, it just feels like we're kicking the can further down the line here. But like I said, Mike will chat a little bit more about that in depth. I'll kind of leave the uh, the analysis to him. I guess some big changes or some big pieces of that report to note are a couple of different things. One of which being we saw corn yields actually rise on this report uh, about a one bushel per acre. We also saw soybean yields rise on this report about a half bushel per acre. So that changed a lot of the uh, production numbers. We also saw it actually was kind of friendly when you look at quarterly stocks. They adjusted those for corn about 5% lower. It was also a pretty friendly report for, friendly to neutral report for wheat. Uh, They reported really the, I believe, second lowest winter wheat seedings we've ever seen on record. So there were some pieces there that definitely moved the market for today. However, really didn't make big moves in the commodity market. So that's why I say it's kind of a non-event, especially after the USDA said, hey, we're going to readjust some of these numbers later. So unfortunately, we're just 
pushing that can further down the line. But like I said, do stay tuned. Mike will have a little better of an update, a little better synopsis of that report for you guys coming up here in just a little bit. We did have a big move happen just about yesterday after we were finished recording the podcast on the USMCA front. We saw the Senate move ahead with their procedures needed to ratify the USMCA agreement, despite still some uncertainty whether or not the impeachment process is going to continue ahead or kind of be at a standstill halt here. We've not seen the House of Representatives release their articles of impeachment and send that over to the Senate, which of course has to be done before the Senate can bring up any piece of that legislation. Uh, We don't know why that's happened, why they're waiting to send that over, but House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told reporters on Thursday that she didn't have a specific timeline on when she would transmit those impeachment articles. She said, quote, I'll send them when I'm ready and that will probably be soon. So we really don't know what that means. Could it be that they're trying to maybe rally some votes in the Senate before they send that over there? Possibly. Is there some other political thing happening behind closed doors we don't know about? Definitely, I'm sure there is. And I'm just, I'm, it's, you know, probably going to be near impossible for them to get the votes that they need in the Senate to impeach President Trump since the Senate is GOP controlled. So I'm hoping that this, uh, This gets put on the back burner for a while so we can see some actual important pieces of legislation get pushed through, such as the USMCA agreement. So like I said there, we don't know exactly the timeline for impeachment going on in the Senate, but we definitely know that USMCA is continuing on down the pipeline. We saw the Senate Finance Committee took lead on USMCA this week and improved the PAC. We will also see it hopefully taken up by the full Senate here shortly. We're hoping to maybe see a vote by the end of this week. Doesn't look like that's going to happen, but it does sound like the Senate is going to go ahead and move forward with it, not wait around to see if the House decides to release those impeachment articles or not. They're just going to say, nope, we're going to go ahead and continue on working on USMCA. So I think that's great news. Hopefully it's a quick and easy ratification process for them. We can see them pass it and send it over to President Trump's desk for official signature. And, you know, maybe we'll see something here a week, two weeks. I don't know. You know, Congress never moves quickly on things, but one can hope that they will move quickly on this piece of legislation. We also know that Lou He, Vice Premier Lou He is Heading to the U.S., he should be here on January 13th. Hopefully just two days after that on the 15th, we'll sign a U.S. trade deal, an official phase one trade deal. Everybody's seeming pretty optimistic about it. There aren't expected to be any roadblocks in the way at this point, even with the U.S.-Iran trade, or uh, not trade conflicts, but uh, rising tensions there and maybe some de-escalation hopefully at this point still expected to see that deal signed. So we should hopefully have some good news next week as well. Looking at some of our other trade partners, we are still waiting to see what happens in the EU and specifically the UK with the Brexit deal. As we have talked about on the podcast before, we saw the UK have an election that put Boris Johnson, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, into office, he's been very much pro-Brexit. So we have seen some different moves going on right now over there in the UK, including the House of Commons 
one of their parliaments, voted to leave the European Union this week. We're actually expecting to see Brexit take place on January 31st. And there could be some conflict before that, some tension before that. But Prime Minister Boris Johnson made kind of a bold move when he called for a special election that made Brexit the primary issue. And it sounds like a lot of folks within the UK voted for Brexit. So we still have to see this go into the House of Lords to be voted on. So they've got kind of a bicameral system too, just like the US House of Commons and House of Lords. They're expected to vote on that new bill sometime here in the next week or so. But it does appear that Brexit is pretty much a done deal or should be a done deal happening by the end of January. Why that matters for agriculture, you may ask, is because we really have had to wait on any sort of trade negotiations with the EU, or excuse me, with the UK, um, because they really need to sort it out the Brexit stuff first before we can work on a bilateral trade deal with them. So could be a step in the right direction. It doesn't sound like anything should derail their Brexit, but uh, like you, like I said, you never really know in, in governments, and I think it's the same way in the UK. We saw another big piece of government-related news happen as of yesterday into today. The Trump administration is proposing to speed up environmental reviews that are required on everything, pretty much from pipelines to grazing permits. And so he's basically trying to ratify the environmental review process, speed things up. It's been pretty cumbersome as of late under NEPA, and that's the National Environmental Policy Act. And so under the Obama administration, we saw things really kind of take a step back. We saw more regulations put into place. And under the Trump administration, he's trying to do away with some of those pieces there are some concerns that this process will not protect the environment. There's actually some people in favor of it saying that there may be ways to improve the process to better protect the environment and provide some more certainty in the industry. So we will continue to watch that story, see if anything new happens there. But uh, right now they're just in that ratification process, it really sounds like. We are also seeing some moves happen today. The Department of Agriculture is proposing for some new criteria to determine if a producer is receiving unfair treatment from a packer or integrator. I think a lot of this is spurred by the hashtag fair cattle trade, excuse me, fair cattle trade, as well as other folks within, especially the livestock industry, obviously, that uh, have felt that perhaps commodity groups have had packers in their back pocket and vice versa, and that the USDA has sided more with the packer or integrator instead of the independent producer, but a new rule that will publish on Monday in the Federal Register of the USDA would be charged with evaluating claims on a case-by-case -case basis to conclude whether or not a packer, swine contractor, or live poultry dealer has made or given any undue or unreasonable preference or advantage to any person or locality. I'm reading this straight from what the USDA has said. In any way, they're looking at this to see if it would violate the Packers and Stockyards Act. Under this new proposed rule, 
We also see some criteria for unfair treatment for producers that would include, but is not limited to, can't be justified on the basis of cost savings, can't be justified on the basis of meeting the terms or prices offered by a competitor, or can't be justified as a reasonable business decision that would be customary in the industry. Those sound like some pretty big criteria, pretty vague or pretty general, so maybe open to some uh, determination, open to your own, I guess, interpretation of that. Come, well, that's, that's something that we'll continue to watch for sure as well, because I know it impacts a lot of folks in the livestock industry who've thought that small farmers are being taken advantage of by the big packers, the big integrators, etc. So we'll continue to watch that story, see how that shakes out, see if really there's any traction from this, and if the USDA is actually going to do anything with this new act. But we'll definitely watch it on our end. I think that pretty much does it for all our news for today. There's a lot of Big things coming up in the industry. A lot of you folks will be traveling soon, I'm sure, for conferences, trade shows, etc. So will Mike and I. So please hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at Ag News Daily or find us each on Twitter as well. If you are going to be at any upcoming trade shows, conferences, etc. and you see us speaking there or you think maybe they'll be there in attendance, please reach out. We'd love to meet you. Love to meet our listeners because it is conference season in agriculture. But... Let's take a look at today's closing commodity market prices. As I mentioned, the WASI report really didn't do much for the, really any of the uh, grains today. All in the positive, so that is great news that we didn't see this report turn bearish, but really kind of a non-event. Kicking off here first with the March corn contract, we saw it close up two and three quarters cents today to end at 386. Even the May put on two and three quarters as well to end at 392 and three quarters. In the soybean pits, the March contract closed up two and a quarter cent to close at 945 and three quarters. The November added two and a half cents to put on to end at 974 even. In the wheat pits, surprisingly with their kind of more friendly news for winter wheat seedings, they didn't have big gains on the day. The March contract put on a penny and a quarter to close at 564 even, while the May put on just a quarter of a cent to end at 565 and a half. Hopping over into the livestock pits for today, green across the screen in the cattle complex with the February contract, putting on 70 cents to close at 127.42. The April up 65 cents to end the day at 127.95. In the feeder cattle pits, the March contract added 90 cents today to close at 147.45. The April up 87.5 cents to close at 150.05. In the lean hog pits, some mixed trading today with the February contract put on 22.5 cents to close at 67.25. The April shed 35 cents, however, to close at 74.12. And rounding out our markets with the Class 3 dairy futures, the January contract added 8 cents today to close at 17.03, while the February was unchanged on the day to close at 16.98. On August 22, 2019, after ending his presidential bid, John Hickenlooper, former Colorado governor, announced his candidacy for United States Senate, currently held by U.S. Senator Cory Gardner. Governor Hickenlooper joins the Colorado Agnews Network and Farmcast Radio by telephone. Welcome back inside the barn, Governor. Hey, Brian. Good to be back. 
First of all, let's begin with, why did you decide to throw your hat in the ring to run for U.S. Senate, especially after you said for months last year that you weren't interested in doing so? Yeah, you know, uh, as I put myself out of the Senate campaign, the U.S. Uh, president campaign, presidential campaign, uh, you know, and I had been one of those people that said that Washington was so broken and so dysfunctional. But I talked to a bunch of governors who'd become senators, and uh, and Ken Salazar and Kim Woods, former senators from, from Colorado, they sat me down and said, listen, we need to explore it because the bottom line is it's so badly broken. But someone like you, Hickenlooper, was from small business. You, you understand you were a mayor, you were a governor. You understand how local and state governments work with the, with the federal government. You're the, the people, the fact that you're in fucking Washington is why Washington's broke. We need more people with small business experience uh, to go back there. So I spent my wife on spent four weeks. Uh, and, you know, again, I know there are a lot of different opinions on President Trump. What I think is, is tariff wars and, uh, you know, the, the cutback on ethanol, uh, the DPA, he's required them to do. I mean, all these things are hurting our rural economy. I think that as far as policy stuff is, is reckless. And Senator Gardner, who's been supporting him, you know, 100 percent of the time, has been a uh, really a yes man. So I, I just got more and more frustrated and angry that, that the Senate wasn't working. And I figured I'm going to go back and try and, and, and get it to work again, to reinvent it. I understand that you're starting your 64-county tour of Colorado with your campaign. Tell me a little bit more about that and where were you today? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're going to go in the next couple months to all 64 counties. Uh, we, yesterday we were in uh, Fort Collins and Greeley and then ended up in Sterling. Uh, we had a meet and greet this morning in Sterling and we went to Julesburg and Holyoke, uh, Burlington. We're going to spend the night in Burlington. Uh, tomorrow we're going to go through uh, Akron and Flagler uh, back in the, uh, Fort Morgan and Morgan County. Uh, you know, and this is the part I love about politics. You get to go out and we're in a hospital uh, in Holyoke and got a great tour, but really saw firsthand the challenges that, that you know, providing good health care in rural areas, uh, what their challenges are and, and the things that, that we should be doing to make sure that those that get better, better quality and we begin to control costs. I know our time is limited, but I wanted to do like a lightning round with you and hit some big areas and big industries within the state and get your thoughts. But before I get to that, I wanted to ask you about trade. And uh, you mentioned you don't agree with President Trump on several issues, but as he says that the president is working to improve our country's free trade deals by increasing their fairness and to pressure China to play by the rules on trade. I'm sure you differ with the president on that, but where do you agree with him when it comes to trade-related issues? So the, and my problem is the trade war, the tariff war. That's just, they never work. You, took, you can talk to any economist, and when I was running for president, I talked to a half dozen, and there's never been a winner in a trade war, right? We all are losers. The question is, who loses war? No country has ever achieved diplomatic objectives by a trade war. And the big losers were, were farmers and ranchers, right? That, you know, if you look at what the, uh, when we, uh, who took the hit when those early tariffs came in? It was people that were selling our our, our, our livestock and our, our crops uh, to foreign countries, and all of a sudden we were crosswise in all kinds of trade agreements. Uh, it just drove me nuts. Now, uh, revisiting NAFTA and working to recreate that, and, and we're close to getting that done, uh, I think that's a, a productive step. But I also think we could have done it without quite so much of a so much drama, right? I mean, it shouldn't have taken that long. 
Yeah, that's true. The USMCA looks like it's going to get passed, but the impeachment trial may hold things up, as it was just announced today that uh, Nancy Pelosi is going to send the articles of impeachment over to uh, the Senate. I want to ask you about that in just a moment, but back to trade. How would you like to see Congress act to help advance fairness and equity when it comes specifically to the U.S.-China trade war? And even though Phase 1 is going to get uh, taken care of, how are, they going to, how are they going to regulate that and make sure that uh, they're playing by the rules? Well, again, I would approach it very differently than the president. I, I view we've got to work with our allies, uh, and that, that starts with NATO. We also have to look at, at, at Australia and Japan. And we need to get the whole world to join us and isolate China. The, the trade war, again, nobody ever wins a trade war. Uh, they tell me that, that over half the time it escalates into military conflict. Uh, if we were able to build our alliances, I think we need more diplomacy, not less, and, 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 and begin to get our our relationships with our allies who stood behind us and beside us in, in, in the Middle East and in all kinds of, of complex situations around the world, we build our relationships with them. We can isolate China and force them to the table. They don't want to just have their own economy standing by itself. They want access to other parts of the world. And more rather than doing that, we've been alienating all of our, all of our European partners or partners for the other parts of the world. The world. Another big topic here in Colorado right now is energy and the situation with the new administration since you left office as governor. Do you think your fellow Democrats in not only Colorado but across the United States have overreached in their attempt to shut down the oil and gas industry? Because I thought when you were governor, you were supporting the oil and gas industry. Well, I've been trying to, to, to make that transition to clean energy as quick as we can. Uh, and, you know, I'm driving into Burlington, looking at those wind farms kind of to the to the north and the northeast and the northwest, I mean, that's our future. And those are good jobs that, you know, if you're worked in the oil business and a lot of those roughnecks, the skills they have are exactly what are needed in, in, in those, the wind farms and the solar farms. So we can't go faster than that. Uh, and I think ultimately when, when we step back, our question should be, I mean, climate change is affecting farmers and ranchers in Colorado. You know, I've got a master's in geology, and I know that science isn't perfect. But we're past the point where we should be debating whether climate change is occurring and whether mankind is causing it. Now, we're not, maybe not causing all of it, but we're causing a, a significant part of it, and we've got to address that. And that means we've got to transition into cleaner forms of energy. You know, the, making sure that we have regulations that we keep the, the, you know, the operations that we have cleaner, like the methane regulations that we negotiated back in, in 2014. I think that's a big step. And, you know, the oil and gas industry is still drilling a bunch of wells. They're still out there doing that. But we've got to continue transitioning to cleaner energy. I don't know if you had a chance to hear the announcement today by Tri-State. Uh, they announced that they're going to shut down and shutter the coal-fired plants in Escalante by the end of this year and also in 10 years by the year 2030 in Craig. Any thoughts on that regard? And then what do you do with those workers that are displaced, both at the power plants and at those mines that they get the coal from? No, absolutely. And I think, first, I mean, this is the point we've been saying for a number of years, and uh, I was saying this back in 2013. The cost curve is coming down so dramatically for, for, for wind and solar that they're closing those plants because they can get energy less expensively from the wind than they can from burning coal. And there is no question that's going to cause some, some readjustments in, in, in our uh, labor force. 
But the bottom line is that the skills that a lot of those people that work in mines and work in uh, uh, in coal-fired electrical generation, a lot of those skills are transferable directly into the clean tech business. And, you know, they're closing. I know that Excel, Excel is closing two plants down in Butler, and they're replacing the coal-fired plants with wind, solar, and batteries. And the actual, when they when all get closed down, the monthly electric bill for the customers is going to go down. And that's, well, now we've got the pressure of the markets, and we just have to make sure that we find good jobs for those workers uh, that we're working in the mines, that we're working in the, uh, uh, in the electrical generation plants. And as you well know, right now we don't have enough workers in almost any field. We're looking for more people in, uh, in construction, more people in, in clean tech, more people in oil and gas. Pretty much everywhere you look, we're trying to find better workers. You can check out all the audio from the Tri-State announcement with Dwayne Hiley, who's with Tri-State. It's posted online inside the barn, by the way, and he mentions how the costs have come down for the renewable energies to help uh, with their decision to shut those coal plants down. Uh, now, as governor, I want to switch to rural issues. As governor, you champion the idea that urban and rural Colorado need each other and wouldn't be successful without one another. How can you carry that on in the Senate, that idea? And obviously, the two areas have many interests that overlap, but when they diverge, how will you craft federal policy, uh, John, that recognizes the inherent differences between urban and rural areas? Well, I spent a, a good part of, of my eight years as governor talking to people along the front range in the urban areas and explaining that they had a self-interest. They had a real benefit by making sure that there was a strong economy in the rural parts of the state. If you think... It's obvious, right, that I think long-term, you need a sustainable source of food so that no matter what kind of chaos is going around us in other states or other countries, we have a consistent source of food when we need it. And that means that in the state, in the, uh, we need to make sure that the, it's not just the farmers and ranchers, but the other smaller businesses in rural areas. That's why we placed place an imperative on getting broadband. Uh, by the end of this year, famous last words, we might end up a month or two late. But we're going to come darn close to, broad, to having broadband in every city and town in Colorado by the end of 2020. No other state's done that, but that's part of our commitment that, you know, that broadband allows small businesses to succeed in rural areas. And we have more small businesses. I mean, lots of people would much rather live in Sterling than live in Denver, right? It's just a higher quality of life, but they don't feel they can get the, the same quality of job. And by getting broadband to every part of these communities, we allow that those people to have that choice. We'll have more jobs choices. Same thing with healthcare. We know it costs a little more because the, you don't have the density of people uh, in the rural areas, but we recognize that by providing quality healthcare in all the rural parts of the state, we give those smaller communities a, a leg up, an opportunity to compete on a, on a more fair basis with the larger cities for, for attracting businesses and, and creating jobs. And jobs are important in that in agriculture labor issues are big right now. What are your thoughts, John, on solving the ongoing problem of a lack of a reliable foreign labor workforce in agriculture in particular? Last year's proposal was to remake a new agriculture worker program and do away with H-2A for agriculture. This year's proposal would give legal status to ag workers who are already here. It will be a problem no matter who wins the White House in 2020. So what's the right balance and what's your take on that? Well, you know, what I always call the Colorado way, the things, the way we address these things in Colorado, it doesn't always work. But the best solution when you've got people that have different opinions on what the priority should be is to 
get everyone in the same room and roll up your sleeves and just start listening to each other. And, you know, when, when I first got elected mayor in Denver, we went out and reached, reached out to all the Republican mayors. And a lot of times they had been kind of at war with the city of Denver. But we realized we had to, you know, make sure that they didn't run out of water, make sure that, that no one was poaching their businesses or their jobs away from them. We were all in this together. And as governor, we tried to do the same thing, get, you know, the oil and gas industry to work with the environmental community to, you know, clean, make sure we don't have methane emissions that are, that are harmful to people's health. Uh, and I think that's what's got to go into Washington in terms of labor uh, and, and, and where those labor, those workers come from. We're still going to need more workers coming in. But we also have to figure out what we're going to do with the people here. And, you know, to think that we're going to uh, send 10 or 11 million people out of this country is, uh, it would be that would, in my opinion, would make it very difficult for for the economy. So I know you got to run, but I I wanted yeah. to ask you real quick. Articles of impeachment are going to go to the Senate next week. If you were senator right now, would you support impeachment, or what's your stance on the impeachment trial? Well, I want to get all the facts. Uh, I'd want to listen to the to the testimony. I would definitely want. I mean. If John Bolton is willing to come testify a subpoena, we should subpoena him. And the American people are going to be ultimate judges. I don't think Mitch McConnell is, there's any way he's really going to uh, allow a conviction to occur. But I do think we should all get the facts, right? And make sure that, that we hear, you know, the people that were in the room when, when these conversations were taking place. We should, we should get to hear it. We should, I don't, you know, I think that we should have, withhold judgment till we get all those facts before we make a decision good point i have a whole bunch of other topics i hope we get a chance to visit again but i'll let you have the last word any final thoughts before i let you go well i appreciate all that you do brian and making sure that everybody gets get get their information from the real people like myself or senator Gardner. i think this is going to be a, an interesting campaign there's pretty strong differences of opinion uh and i look forward to that debate i think this is a a critical time in this country's history, and, you know, my goal is to go out there and hopefully be part of reinventing and making the Senate work again, which, Lord knows, it certainly isn't working right now the way it should be. Well, thanks for your time. You've always been gracious when you were governor, and uh, now as well, appreciate your visit with us here inside the barn. You bet. Thanks so much, Brian. Those comments, once again, from former Cobbler Governor John Hickenlooper, candidate for U.S. Senate. You can learn more about his campaign online at hickenlooper.com. Hickenlooper.com. Well, again, a big thanks there to Mike for taking that, taking care of that part of our podcast for today. We're going to talk markets again on Monday with Naomi Bloom, so do stay tuned for that. But we talk markets, we talk news, we talk all things agriculture every day here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, and you can catch up on any past episodes, listen to some of the great interviews of folks we've had on in the past. Find all of our episodes at agnewsdaily.com or on most podcast carrying platforms, including Google Play, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts are my favorite three to find them on. But do interact with us there. Interact with us on social media as well. Please do let us know what conferences, trade shows, events you'll be attending here in the near future. Let us know at Ag News Daily. With that, I hope everybody has a great week and we'll see you right back here on Monday. <laughs> <laughs>